Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 85 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today is Amy Gallo. Amy is the author of Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone and in brackets, Even Difficult People. She's also the author of the Harvard Business Review's Guide to Dealing with Conflict. Amy also co-hosts the Women at Work podcast and is a contributing editor at the Harvard Business Review, where she's authored literally hundreds of articles on workplace dynamics. I've known of Amy's work for some time, but she came to mind for me very recently when we were putting together a series of articles in a sort of a curation, if you like, of what we called the Art of Managing Up. We put this out for our Habits of Leadership Academy, and the Art of Managing Up really explores how you can work with um, your boss, how you can create more collaborative, engaging, impactful relationships when perhaps those bosses might be in themselves just a little bit tricky. And so, in fact, actually, if you enjoy this conversation, you can download um, your own copy of The Art of Managing Up from the show notes. But I thought it'd be great to actually see if Amy would come on the show to talk about all things getting along and how to work with anyone. And I'm delighted to say she agreed and she joins us today. Amy, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Dan. I'm happy to be here. So um, I've known of your work for quite some time through, obviously, um, your work with Harvard Business Review, but it came uh, to prominence again for me really um, quite recently when we were putting together um, some resources and some links and curating some um, articles for our the people we work with around the concepts of managing up and that really that really you know there were so many things in there that just prompted me to say you know like you've you've always kind of been on the list oh, i'd be great to get amy on and i was like no no now i'm definitely going to get amy on it just sort of brought it right to the surface but for those of those people who haven't necessarily read um your stuff or, or might not be too um across you, you know what, what you do in the world of uh, team dynamics and whatnot. Could you just give us the the short version of the Amy Gallo story um, and, yeah. and, and bring us into the picture? Yeah, well, the very short story is that I talk about conflict and difficult conversations and other types of human interactions at work. And I do that through articles, through books, through my podcast, which is called Women at Work, put out by Harvard Business Review. And I have just been fascinated by the way we interact at work for a long time. And I mean that in terms of early in my career when I worked as a management consultant, I was always my, you know, I worked for a firm that focused on the intersection of strategy and organization. And while all my colleagues were fascinated with how do we come up with the best strategy for this company, I was really focused on how are the people in the room going to get along well enough to make this strategy work? Mm. And I carried that into my work as a writer and a thinker and have just been really looking at, you know, human dynamics in the workplace um, for over a decade now. And and most recently, I this is not a linear story, by the way, mm. for those <laughs> for those who are hoping I was born here, then <laughs> no, I'm going I'm going in circles, but I think you could follow um, and most recently, I published a book called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. And that book really 
you know, there's so much written about dealing with difficult people. If you Google that phrase, there's a zillion books, there's articles. But what I found was that so much of what was out there was really generic advice. And I knew intuitively that how you deal with someone who is a know-it-all versus how you deal with someone who's an insecure manager is going to be very different. So I wanted to give people more targeted advice about how to deal with some of those challenging patterns of behavior that we all encounter at work. Mm. And, you know, I I know because I've heard you talk on this before, you weren't actually too fond of the word difficult being in the in the title is that fair there was yeah. a little there was the publishers kind of went oh this is good we is am i am i right when i say that publishers kind of wanted it you were kind of less inclined to go with it yeah well to be fair i pitched the book about as a book about difficult be- people so mm. i was the one who put the word out there right, but right. in the process of writing the book I became more and more uncomfortable with that phrase. And I was really hesitant. You're you're right. I was really hesitant to have it on the cover, partly because I don't really, I mean, there are people who are just objectively difficult. Like, Mm -hmm. I think we can agree. You and I are probably thinking of a few in our minds right (laughs) right now, right? But I think for the most part, our decision to label someone as difficult is a decision to try to prove that we're right and they're wrong. And more often, the dynamic between us is much more complex than that. Mm -hmm. And so I really, really believe in the Harvard Negotiation Project idea that you should focus on the, the problem, not the people. And yet, it's really about the people. And the way my publisher really convinced me, let's put that word on there, is that we wanted the books to get into the hands of people who really needed it, who wanted this advice. And they're thinking, I'm dealing with a difficult person. Mm. They're not like, oh, I'm dealing with a person who is difficult at times, but I'm also difficult. Right? They want, when they're looking for that book, they're looking for help with dealing with a difficult person. Mm. So you, you spoke there a little bit about the, the behaviors or the, the personas or the ways in which um, people might show up, which can contribute to conflict or drama or however we want to frame it or, or less than yeah. ideal team dynamics um, <laughs> I like that less than ideal team dynamics <laughs> yeah <laughs> um I'm wondering um you know obviously the book um has just uh, come out here in Australia first of September it, it, it came out so we want people to get the book because there's no way we could do the book um justice or people what certainly won't get what they really need from a from a, a podcast but what I would like to do is kind of whet the appetite so to speak and sure. kind of t- touch on some of the um whether you, and, and feel free to take this wherever's front of mind for you whether it's sort of like the more common conflict styles you might see or the kind of personas that we, that people might be um working with in 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 a yeah. workplace yeah well I'll tell you the original sort of archetype that I that really made me want to write the book getting along was um the passive aggressive peer so i wrote a book about how to deal with conflict and and that um was more of a sort of uh general framework for how to deal with with conflict as it comes up in in a team or in an organization or in your one-on-one interactions and i was doing some speaking on that book since it came out and i would inevitably i could almost guess (laughs) <laughs> how quickly the question was going to come up in the Q&A or in the chat, you know, if I was doing a virtual presentation, which is that 
someone inevitably would say, okay, how do I deal with a, a passive aggressive person? Mm. And so I think the that was the first sort of archetype that I thought, okay, this is something people want help with. And, and in fact, when I do talks, I often run a poll asking people which of the eight archetypes in, in my book do they encounter most often? And passive aggressive peer is almost always number one, if not it's number two mm. after the the know it all. So, you know, the kinds of patterns of behavior, this passive aggression where you're, you know, saying one thing, doing another, maybe know it all, someone who interrupts you quite often or is condescending, the insecure manager who micromanages you and questions every decision you make. You might be the biased colleague who commits microaggressions toward you. You know, there's so many different ways that we experience this sort of incivility and conflict at work. And I think anyone listening probably is like, oh, yeah, like either I've, you know, as I hear those examples, yep, I've got one of those or yep, I've been through that. Or they might have their own experience, their own example of, of that might be a slightly different but equally vexing for them. Mm. Talk to me then a little bit about the the tension between managing that, dealing with that, me changing my behavior so that lands less impactfully on me and actually addressing the root cause or, or the, the, I know the root cause could be, you know, that's probably more <laughs> therapy than, than anything else. But, but, right. but, but talk to me about the tension between that because I, I'll work with, plenty of people who look back at me and go damn this is you know they're the ones that need to sort themselves out and whereas yeah. and, and I'm I know what I'm thinking in my head when I hear that but I'm curious to hear what you're thinking in your head when you hear that yeah and it's a good tension I'm glad you asked it because it's a good tension to think about um and you know I say in the introduction to my book like if you're looking to win you know year a years long battle with a colleague and sort of tricking them into behaving differently. This is not the book for you. You know, the secret of the book is it's a lot of it is about how to change your own reaction and the way you handle the way they behave. Now, if, there are also tactics that ideally nudge that person into more productive behaviors, but you're not going to get to the root cause. You're not going to hand them a prescription for therapy and say, like, come back and we'll deal with this project once you've you know, addressed all of your parental issues. Like that's not going to happen. Right. So, and you can't force another person to change. I, I, you know, it's sort of become trite, but this idea that you can't change another person. And I, I believe it like 95%. I do believe there is a way to sort of show someone a better way of interacting, to put them on notice that you're not going to take the uncivil behavior from them. Right. I think there's I've seen it happen. I talk about a lot of the stories in the book are about people who were able to change the dynamic between them and the other person. Did they solve that person's deep seated insecurities? Absolutely not. Did they, you know, drastically change the way most of our organizations reward overconfidence, leading to lots of know-it-alls? No, they did not. But in those dynamics, either they found a way to see the the interaction or the incivility in a different light that allowed them to sort of handle it better, or they were able to actually encourage their colleague to behave and act and interact with them in different ways. Mm. And is it, on, on, on sort of one level is that um, 
on one level is that as simple as as simple and as difficult <laughs> as saying <laughs> hey you know when you do this it makes me feel this and so just sort of shining a light on that it could it could it be as simple as that as a start point yeah i mean yes so i think and, and i do say simple sorry i do say as simple and as difficult as saying that because that could be quite yes yeah challenging yeah yeah, I love when people give, and, and I, I have done this myself, but I love when people give advice, like, all you have to do is sit down with your colleague, lay out the things that are really bothering you. It's like, are you kidding? Most people would be in tears before they would have that conversation, right? So yes, it is simple, and it's incredibly tough. And sometimes it's really complicated. Um, so in some ways, yes, that is the solution, is describing what the behavior is, the impact it's having on you, the team, whatever it is they care about, because they may not care about you, let's be honest, and saying, it bothers me when you do this, they may not, they may not be motivated by that, right? They may think, well, get some thicker skin, right? Or they may think, well, that's on you, not me, right? Like, there's so many ways in which people can dismiss that it's a, you know, here's, here's this thing you're doing, here's the impact it's having on me. But if you can frame it in something they care about, you know, if it's someone who's like, incredibly focused on their own success, if you can describe a way in which that behavior, whether it's interrupting people, whether it's being condescending, whether it's not including team members, if you can describe how that's impeding their success, they then might be more motivated to do something about it. But there's also a lot of other tactics, not just that. And, and I will be honest that sometimes that direct approach of saying, talking directly to the person doesn't work. Either they're incapable of, of taking that feedback, they don't care, like I just was talking about, or maybe they're just so immature, disconnected from, you know, lack of self-awareness, disconnected from reality, that they retaliate in some way. So sometimes it's more indirect ways. So creating a team norm that we won't tolerate interruptions and when someone interrupts everyone will say oh hold on let's hear what dan has to say mm. right it might be um talking to your manager about ways to uh restructure your work so you interact with that person less often therefore the, the interaction becomes less heated when you do have to interact right there's so many other different ways of handling it and it's this is the tough part is it really will depend on your situation, which is why my book is really like a menu of tactics that you can use, right? Nowhere in the book do I say, and nowhere in most of my work do I say, here's a five-step approach to reforming your passive-aggressive colleague, because I don't think you can do that. It's going to depend on you, the other person, the context of the organization, the, you know, the relationship between you, the power structure in the organization. There's so much that influences whether something is going to be effective or not. Mm. You, um, one of the things you said there was, you know, they might not care about you. You know, they might not care. And I'm wondering to what extent, if I'm gonna, if I'm, if I'm gonna be able to change my mindset towards somebody or, or my approaches, to what extent do I have to? I'm trying to word this right. Whether it is, do I have to care about them? Do I have to see them? as a person and kind of see this behavior not as a you know it does it is it helpful to see this behavior as well there must be something else going on right now there yeah. must be something contributing to this that i don't yeah. understand and does that help or does that just become even more frustrating 
Yeah. Well, it's you're. I think you're asking in in a lot of these questions. You're at, you're getting back to that tension of like, do I have to do all the work, right? Mm. So if you do all this work of seeing them as human, changing your mindset, finding these tactics, right? Like it's a lot to do. Because I've got a job. I've got a job to do. I've I've got a project to run. (laughs) Exactly. And it's easy to get think. And it's not only easy, it's completely fair to think, well, if they just did their job Mm. and if they didn't make this so difficult, I wouldn't have to do all this work. Mm. Right. And, And that is valid. The question is, what is your ultimate goal? And is your interaction with this person, is it impeding you? from succeeding in the ways you want to. And I I almost always land on when I'm doing the calculation, right? The pro con list, the cost benefits of changing my behavior. And, um, you know, do I change my behavior? Do I change my mindset? Do I put in all that effort? I, I usually find it's worth it, right? Even, even if ultimately it doesn't work or I have to try it something different or even something drastic, at least I can feel good that I put the effort in. What I try to get out of is that calculation of why am I doing all the work? Why am I putting in X amount of hours and they're doing nothing? Because, and this is not, (laughs) this isn't very kind to say, but at the end of the day, that person has to wake up as their miserable selves every day. And I get to wake up as someone who is trying my best to connect with humans and is trying to see people for who they are. I'd rather be that person, even if it requires more effort, than to be the person who's just sort of stumbling through life, not connecting with people in a genuine way and leaving a trail of ill will. Mm. And so, so you framed it at the moment, as far as I'm hearing it, it's sort of been framed a lot around success and progress and you know, work, you know getting the work done. Yeah. How does that change when actually it's it's going a bit deeper than that? And it, it's actually, I'm starting to really, it's starting to impact me as a person. It's starting to impact the way I think of myself. It's starting to impact um, my, you know, the sense of well-being, uh, connection, mm-hmm. belonging, whatever that might be. Is, does, does it still hold? Like, Is, is it still um, work for me to be doing? Yeah, I mean... This is the way I think of it. And and that I love this question because right, it's if we're really focused on just the end of the day doing our jobs, right? Then maybe it's worth it, right? That's the cost benefit. But if we're talking about this isn't just standing in the way of my getting through my to-do list, but this is actually impairing my sense of self, my tarming my ego, maybe it's even hurting my career, um, or just causing me physical and mental distress, which is very that those are the stories I hear all the time of how how hard these inter- negative interactions can be on people's psyche and on, and on their bodies literally. Mm. Um, so, you know, on you know, is does the calculation change if if that's the level we've gotten to? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Still, I do wonder though. Well, it's not that I wonder. It's that I know that I can't make that other person change. And so what levers do I really have available to me, right? You can escalate. And we can talk about all the pros and cons of doing that. Right? You can leave your job. 
you can stop interacting with that person. You can retaliate, do the, you know, respond with the same behavior there. They're... And at the end of the day, when I go through all those options, sometimes just disconnecting from caring about that, what that person's doing, if I can, is the best option, right? It's the lowest lift. Now, that still requires work on my part. Um, and I usually don't do that until I've tried, because sometimes even just trying to nudge that person into more productive behavior, if you're able to, is easier than trying to tell yourself this doesn't matter and really disconnect from the emotional response you're having. Does that make mm. sense, Dan? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. does. I think, you know, we are, we have a phrase here, and I don't know if it's popularized in, in um, I'm sure it would be in America. It's like, <laughs> it is what it is, right? It is what mm -hmm. it is. And once yeah. we can accept it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Then, then we actually it, it it feels like we're actually ceding control, right? If we say that, but I actually try and reframe it as no, no, we're reclaiming it because if I can accept it is what it is, then I realize I've the only thing I can really control is myself, and yet I've got there's a, there's like a real depth to that. You know, it yeah. might feel quite it might be narrow. Don't get me wrong. There's a narrow <clears throat> excuse me. There's a narrow band of control, but the depth of that control, whether it's you know, yeah, however you want to frame that, you know, your identity, your values, um, your behaviors, your reactions, there's a lot. I, I personally feel that being able to disconnect the, the psychological impact from what is happening. I know that's, yeah. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, yeah. but yeah. that's my, but no. that's, that's the line I like to tap with people. Yeah, it is what it is. And, the, and, and they are who they are. I mean, that's the other mm. I mean, not to get super personal, but I remember my husband and I were going through a rough patch in our marriage and we went to, to therapy. And I remember the therapist looking at me going, this is who you married. And I was like, oh, right. Mm. Like it, it, I, I was so hung up on him being a different person. I forgot who I had married. And I think about that. Like It's different, obviously, in a marriage because I chose that. But in, a, in work context, we don't often don't choose. But at the end of the day, these people are who they are. You're not going to, I, I've never heard of someone, you know, having a difficult colleague who they were able to like convince to go to therapy, like I said, right? Convinced to like completely rehaul who they were and how they interacted. Like we are who we are now. That doesn't mean you have to tolerate especially destructive behavior, but even uncivil behavior, you don't have to tolerate it. And there are lots of ways to set up boundaries. And, and I talk a lot in the book about how to, how to do that. And sometimes those are emotional boundaries. Sometimes those are actually physical boundaries, right? Just sort of putting distance between yourself and the other person can help. Um, so, you know, but I do think that you're so right that it is what it is. And it's such an unsatisfying it, well, let me say this. It's another one of those simple things to say, tough things to execute, right? I can't tell you how many times I've said, oh, it is what it is, and then spent the next 24 hours completely ruminating on this one email interaction or this one conversation. And I was like, oh, I thought I was letting this go. <laughs> and it was like, nope, it's going to eat me up mm. inside for 24 hours. And then I'm going to be able to hopefully let it go or or do something different. Mm. You know, I, I had this experience where someone I didn't even know, I'd never met this person, sent this email to me. It was so after sort of a sort of tricky back and forth over email. 
they sort of accused me of not caring about human interaction. Um, and I was so, it, it was like three nights I lost of sleep over this email. Again, someone I've never met, someone who I've never interacted with since, but it was just, I was like, what, like, why is this bothering me so much? And I had to, I think the other thing, and, you know, I hate to give this advice sometimes because I'm, you know, I don't want to sort of put a silver lining on everything, but sometimes these interactions and the way we react to them are an opportunity to learn about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And what ended up, I realized from that email situation is that I actually care a lot about human interaction mm -hmm. and being accused of not was really, really upsetting to me. And so it was like, okay, like at the end of the day, I don't care. I call him Brad in my book. That's not his real name. But like, I don't care what Brad thinks of me. I care as being seen in the world as someone who cares about human interaction. Are most of my touch points with other people conveying that? Yes. Okay. So now I can say it is what it is. Brad can feel however he feels about me. I'm moving on. And I'm going to double down on projecting what I think is important, which are my values and, and, and this caring about human interaction. Mm. Yeah. It's that's that, you know, you frame that as like, you don't want to put a silver lining on it, but I actually think that it's not putting it, every interaction like that, every, every interaction full stop is an opportunity to learn, right? It's, it's an opportunity yeah. to, to grow or develop our thinking, not necessarily change our mind or, or get objectively better at something. But I think it's it's actually a bit of a mantra we have in our in our work is every day gives us that opportunity to learn grow and develop and I, I love what you said there about the reason it got me so much is because it went to the core of who you subscribe to being right it's it's and that's and, right and, and it's it's I think that's always interesting for me it's like you know when feedback stings a little bit I reckon there's some value in it if you can just brush it off yeah. I'm not sure that uh, maybe you know if you can brush it off either you've not thought about it enough or it's it, yeah. it it's it's not jarring anything that you, you know what I mean if someone says to, yeah. I don't know you're rubbish at football well yeah, yeah f fine <laughs> I don't, you know I'm, yes. <laughs> I, I, I've never professed to be good at football I'm not I'm not interested in right. football etc you know so yeah right. whereas you're like valid, whereas, valid point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> whereas saying to you someone who's dedicated their life to human interaction you don't care about it that's yeah yeah that yeah. would be something of a challenge yeah and I I tell you what um happened so that I tell that story in the book and I was I had a I did a talk in New York in January and someone in the audience during the Q&A actually came well sort of heckled me they, they didn't even actually have the mic they just sort of stood up and was like you should have responded differently that was on mm. you and it was so interesting because I was like okay there is a reason the story keeps sticking mm. and and maybe I I completely am willing to accept that there was part of me that maybe did dismiss Brad and did make Brad feel small or like I didn't care about human interaction. And to the point where I want, even when I tell the story, there's some people who read the book and are like, yeah, no, you were, that was on you. And mm -hmm. I, I had, it's, it's the first time I've ever been heckled in a, in a talk. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and I loved, I mean, I, I loved it is probably too strong a word. I learned a yeah. lot from it yeah. and and it was a great opportunity to model a lot of what I talk about in the book of like, okay, tell me more. Why do you mm. think that? Why do you think yeah. I should have done that? Like invited her to the mic and said, okay, tell me more. What, what you know, and, and <laughs> the irony is it gave me a chance to have a human connection 
with this person. And, you know, she had me sign her book at the end of the talk and all of that. Like, it was definitely a moment of like, okay, like, all of us are going to have different perspectives. And we're not going to see it the same way, but we can still connect and talk it through, right? Figure mm. it out. And and I think, um, you know, people are, are often not keen to do that what they're often keen to do is plant their flag in the ground and just yell until the other person <laughs> relents you know whereas yeah. actually it's like whoa, whoa, whoa no we don't we don't have to argue here let's just have right. a conversation you know I'm not trying right. to change your mind let's just have a chat and yes. and it depends you know people take um p- people get annoyed with me sometimes because I often start my answers with well it depends you know, like they'll yeah. they'll want a yes no answer. They'll want a black and white. They'll want an you know all or nothing. Yeah. And it's like, nah. I reckon it depends, and people don't yeah. want that. You know, especially they especially don't. perhaps if they're frustrated, they're desperate, they're reaching out for. But I've been dealing with this person for so long; it's making me feel. Let's just tell us how to fix it, and it's yes. yeah, it depends. And often, oftentimes, what people really want. It's funny how many times I hear the word inappropriate. Like, isn't that behavior inappropriate? And mm. And it's and I think, yeah, you know, like, yes, in my value system, that was inappropriate. Um, but in their value system, it clearly isn't. And so, like, let's talk about what, why, like, why do we want to label it so clear? And I think, and I know this from my own experience navigating challenging relationships is that oftentimes I just want to feel like I'm right. I just want to feel like, no, I've done the right thing. They're the one who's in the wrong and it's just not that clear cut when humans are messy and to be, you know, if there was some referee who could enter every workplace and be like, nope, you're right. You're wrong. Carry on. You're right. You're wrong. Carry on. You know, like then, then things would be simpler, but I think we've just found a new profession. (laughs) (laughs) Workplace ref. (laughs) That's right. They just sit in meetings. Nope. No, you shouldn't have interrupted. Carry on. Time out. You're off. (laughs) Exactly. I th- either we've discovered a new profession or we've come up with a perfect idea for like a Saturday Night Live skit because I yes. can totally see it. <laughs> <laughs> when um when when we think about um the it's inappropriate. So you know another version of that is um, they're just not professional. Yeah. You know they're just not yes. professional. And um I always come back at this idea of going okay well. Y- why don't you right now write down what professional means and let's get the person next to you to write it down and I'll write it down and you write it down too. And it's like, we all know what professional means and yet it all means different things to different people. And so, so you mentioned this before about norms. So, so what role here does, does a lead? Cause at the moment we're, we're framing this a lot as peer to peer stuff, but Mm -hmm. what about the leader in all of this who, you know, they're not going to take on the role of ref, but they yeah. could perhaps they could perhaps set the playing field out. They could sure. perhaps um, just give some guidelines about how we're going to play the game. Um, yeah. Talk to me about the importance of norms because sometimes I again I see the eye rolls when we talk when we say it. It's like oh you're treating adults like kids and this like and it's like no no no. I reckon when we set norms, you know we do this in the classroom because we're actually treating kids like adults. That's the way I frame it. Oh, I love that. I, oh my, I might steal that with permission. You can have that. that is, you can yeah, have that. that is, that's gold. That is gold. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I think, I think about that word professional. I actually heard, I attended a, an online talk today by um, a, an author named Marcus Collins who write his, 
his book is um, For the Culture. It's a great book. Mm-hmm. But he was talking about culture, and he was saying if you asked five different people what their definition of culture were, was, you'd get 55 different answers. And I think the mm-hmm. same is true for professional. What's professional? Mm-hmm. You ask five people, you're going to get so many different responses. What I say is professional on one day is going to be different than the next, right? But I do think leaders play an important role in describing the ways we want, we should interact. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, we all come to the workplace with very different experiences, whether those are experiences in our family, in our friendships, at university, in our previous job. And there's not consensus around how we're going to treat one another and how we're going to react, interact. And so the more you can make that clear, I don't think you're treating adults like kids. I think you're just trying to clarify how we want to treat each other. And, you know, it's what you're really doing there is leveling the playing field. Because if you think about who who gets labeled as unprofessional more often than not, it's people who are outside the norm and outside the mainstream. And so you're really what you're trying to do is really create an inclusive work environment where it's clear, okay, we're we're not going to interrupt one another. Guess who gets interrupted more than almost anyone in an organization? Women, right? So creating a norm of we're not going to interrupt each other really benefits equity and inclusion efforts. It also benefits your introverts. It also even benefits, you know, perhaps a man who tends to get interrupted because of his positional power or lack of it in the organization, right? It's it's about bringing, raising everyone up to the same level and giving people tools to call out behavior. Because that's, that's the other thing. I think we think, okay, we'll set norms and then everyone will just adhere to them. The purpose of the norms is not to make sure that everyone does everything right all the time. It's that so when people make mistakes, which they will do, you have a remedy for naming it and moving on and and asking them to behave differently. So, Dan, if we're in a meeting, you interrupt me three times and the team all is like, hey, Dan, you interrupt. Hey, Dan, you know, like it's not you're not a bad person. You're just violating a norm that we've agreed to. What and what that norm does is give everyone else in the room the power to say, hey, this isn't how we wanted to interact with another one another, remember? Right. Mm-hmm. And so ideally you get to learn from that too. Ideally, you get to reflect on why do I interrupt? Why how does that happen? What's going through my head while I'm doing it? Right. We just like you said, every day is an opportunity to learn, grow, and develop. Like mm-hmm. every mistake is also an opportunity to learn, grow, and mm-hmm. develop. Mm-hmm. Which we sort of led us to this path now of okay, so Ideally, the leader can help structure that. But what happens when it's the leader that's the passive-aggressive one or the know-it-all or the, the one who constantly interrupts me? How do, how do we navigate? And again, I know, I know that this is covered in, in, in the book and whatnot, but brought, you know, can you give us some little insights about the differences or the challenges specific to managing up when we've got yeah. someone in a position of power who's doing this? Yeah, I mean, it's... Oh, it's tough. <laughs> I will start by saying that it is really tough because we do it, it's it's different when there's a, a hierarchical difference between you and, and the person um, you're dealing with. And 
you know, I've heard the phrase, maybe you have too, of like a leader's whisper is heard as a shout, right? So when a leader is being passive aggressive or micromanaging, the impact on the team is much greater than if one of your colleagues is doing it. And so that that speaks to the need for, for leaders to really um, actually get their act together and, and really recognize and become familiar with their bad habits and try to address them. But that also means it's on us as um, as members of the team to do what we can to address that behavior. Now, it may not be possible to go to your manager and say, hey, you're behaving passive aggressively. Hey, you're micromanaging me. I understand there's risks in doing that, right? They, this is someone who controls what projects you get on, whether you get a promotion, whether you get raises, right? They control oftentimes how good your day is. So violating what we have assume is a social norm of not addressing, uh, you know, faults in the people in power does come with risks. But there are other more subtle ways. And even doing things like, hey, can we suggest some norms for the team? Can we, our team wants to come up with some norms, can we run them by you, right? Just sort of trying to, um, and, and some people think of this as doing their leader's work. Yeah, you might be doing the leader's work. You might be taking on an extra burden that you don't wouldn't norm normally need to in in a with a quote unquote good boss, mm. but is it worth it in the end if you're not pulling your hair out at the end of, of every day? And I think the the thing I really encourage people to do is, you know, I I spoke just a moment ago about the risks involved in addressing or disagreeing with or pushing back or giving feedback to someone more senior, and I think we often focus on those risks without thinking about the risks of not speaking up or not doing something. And I really encourage people to think about the risks of not ch challenging what's happening versus the risks of challenging. Yes. And, and you need to do both, but I think we often don't think about the costs of inaction. And I think with, when you're dealing with someone who's challenging in a position of power, you have to really challenge yourself to ask, what am I condoning? What am I allowing? Are there other ways? And and sometimes it's a matter of escalating, which also can be risky. Um, sometimes it's a matter of joining together with your colleagues. And I was, yeah, yeah. I was and wondering just, that the strength in numbers, and then because I, I was literally thinking that as you said that, but then I'm thinking, geez, is that then promoting a a, a workplace dynamic of, of, of you know talking behind people's backs and ha that that's an interesting one because presumably if I'm going to speak up to the boss I'm kind of wanting to know that others have got my, I don't want them all looking at the floor as I'm <laughs> as I'm raising these issues Talk yes. to, yeah what's what's a healthy and in the inverted commas professional way <laughs> to yes. kind of to kind of <laughs> gauge the interest of of your peers um, yeah. without without serving to undermine the boss yeah. who presumably is already feeling some sort of drama. That's why they're acting in certain ways. I'm, yes. I'm interested in how you don't contribute to the drama. Yeah. And you want to make sure you're, you don't create a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like if you, mm. if you decide, if, let's say your boss is a micromanager and it's because they feel insecure and you start, you know, talking with all of your colleagues, your peers about, Oh my God, are you getting micro? Oh my God. They seem so insecure. Right. They're, they're going to start noticing you're all talking and and they're going to start noticing how you all, your body language when you interact, and they're going to feel more insecure. So guess what they're going to do? They're going to micromanage more. So I think one of the key things 
when you do want to discuss whether it's a senior person or whether it's a peer, someone else's behavior and how to deal with it, you keep it really constructive, right? This is not a gossip venting session. I'm a big believer in venting, but but doing it with people for whom it, it creates more stress, more anxiety. Hopefully there's someone else outside the organization, outside the team who you can you can vent to. And instead, the question is, how can we make this better, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not loving the feedback I'm getting. It's not specific enough or it's overly specific. Are you having the same experience? What, do you have any thoughts about how we can make that better, right? Like, and really, and, and sorry, I mean, you might be hearing my dog in the background. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> who's apparently communicating with the neighbor's dog at the yeah, same time. Yeah. There's a lot going on. It's, um, there's a lot of stuff happening in the neighborhood. They need to talk exactly, a bit already. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They need to shout about it, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but the, but I think you really want to just make sure that you're keeping it focused on your goal, which ideally is to, you know, make things better with with your boss, not um, not like just continue to sort of reinforce isn't our boss terrible because that narrative doesn't help anyone. Right. It really right. does not help. It doesn't help you. It might feel good in the short term. Right. right? But it's not going to help in the long term of if you're trying to make something better. Yeah. And I think that framing it as, is this helpful? Is this useful? You know, is it serving us? Yeah. More so than does it feel good in the moment just to get it off my chest? And yeah. some, something you mentioned there about, you know, you 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 advocate for venting. But it, I think I heard you say there's kind of like a little caveat there, though. But it's better to do it with someone not in your team or or in the organization. Is that a fair way of summarizing what you said? Yeah. Yes. And I also know that's not always possible, right? Like mm. there's only so many times my friends can hear me complain about that one coworker, right? There's only, yeah. and they don't know all the nuance and it feels so much better to complain to someone who knows the person. Who gets, <laughs> but I think that the key is, and that there's actually some research around this, which is that mm. venting to someone who just validates your perspective, who um, really uh, just sort of says, oh my God, you're right. You're right. That's, they're terrible that actually makes you feel worse in the long run than someone who says, huh, what's another way of seeing this? What do you think their perspective is? If they were in the room, what do you think they would say right now? Right? Have you given them any feedback? That kind of venting, and it starts to less feel like venting and more like problem solving, which I think is intentional. That is, I think in the long run makes us feel better. Ideally, you're not going to everyone who works with this person and saying, aren't they a know-it-all, right? Like, aren't they so condescending? Because again, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I've never done that, that I don't gossip about the people I work with. I, I like to think most of the time it's productive and focused and positive. Actually, there's a lot of positive gossip that happens in organizations. We don't talk about it because it's not nearly as juicy, but... Um, and there is this bonding result that comes from from gossip. I'm not going to deny that. I just watch because this is the other. I mean, we could talk about gossip for hours. It's so interesting. But there is research that shows the person whose reputation is most damaged by gossip is the person relaying the gossip, not the mm. object of the gossip. So mm. if yeah. I'm telling, if I'm sitting there gossiping about our boss. You're thinking, oh, our boss is bad. Yeah, yeah. But then you start thinking, but Amy talks behind people's back. 
Mm-hmm. Like, what's up with that? Right. And do, do I trust her? And so I think we've, we have to keep that in mind when we're thinking about venting, when we're thinking about sharing information, like just remember it, it does have a consequence on your reputation as well. The last thing I'll say about, about gossip is that it is so tempting in these situations to do it because in some ways it's also how we figure out what how we feel about things. But I think ultimately you just want to make sure you're doing it as productively as possible, right? With a goal in mind of making the situation better, not making it worse. And that really comes down to um, what's your intention behind doing this? The behavior is what we're seeing, but where's that coming from? And if you Mm -hmm. go back to what you were talking about before about is this is this in line with who I am and who I want to be? Or am I falling foul to just reactive venting and maybe I'm falling into passive aggressive stuff? I I, I don't know. But having that intentionality piece is really important, I think. Yeah. So when we think about this, um, I'm hearing a lot of um, correlations or connections with um, Amy Edmondson's work around psychological safety. And one version of psychological safety I've heard is um, it's almost a complete misread in that, you know, we we kind of, we we want it to be so psychologically safe, then we won't raise issues, which is obviously completely the opposite of what Amy (laughs) suggests, because she's talking about the, but then then at the other end of the spectrum, and it's similar with like Kim Scott's work around radical candor, it's like, well, in the spirit of radical candor, or in the spirit of psychological safety, then someone is just absolutely scathing about somebody. (laughs) I'm going to destroy, in the interest of radical candor, I'm going to destroy you. Yeah, exactly. Again, and it seems it's a complete misread of the stuff, but I'm, I'm, I mean, you must see this a lot, the way articles and the way frameworks and concepts get um thrown out so the way i'm thinking about this is sometimes people say look okay assuming they understand psychological safety we need that before we can do this Mm -hmm. or or is it more symbiotic can we build psychological safety by doing this How how do you frame that um in your thinking I think of it more as the latter, right? It's symbiotic, right? If you're going to sit around and wait till you feel psychologically safe to do some of these hard things, it's going to take a long time. In fact, we learn and we build psychological safety by making mistakes, by addressing them as a team, by processing them, and then deciding what we want to do differently. And, you know, the definition that from Amy Edmondson that I think of when I think of psychological safety is is the shared belief that we can discuss hard things, admit mistakes, raise tough issues without fear of negative consequences or retaliation. Now, mm. it will there be no negative consequence to saying, hey, boss, uh, we noticed you're micromanaging us. Or, hey, boss, we noticed you're not letting us interact with anyone on the level above you, right? Of course, there will be some consequences. And and it it will be hard, but can you all get through it as a team? And I think that's the real, there is this, this, the, the big misinterpretation of Amy's work that I see is that psychologically safe means comfortable, Right, that you're somehow it always has to feel okay, like you always have to feel like you're you're safe or comfortable. But no, I mean it's gonna it's gonna be really hard sometimes. And and in fact, 
discomfort is often a sign that you are in a, a doing something that in a, that's going to build psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be you have to be okay with it won't always feel great, right? But it will in the long run be good for what the team is trying to do and what we're what we want to do it how we want to interact with one another as a team in the future. Talk to me just to round out because um you know, obviously, the past few years have meant that we've we've moved away from perhaps being as close together as we might normally have been. And I'm wondering how that's either played into or or actually helped or not helped. And I, I'm already guessing that the answer probably starts with it depends. But how's the advent? <laughs> how's the advent of remote work contributed to or actually served to deal with? Um, mm-hmm. Some of the more typical conflicts that you've researched and you and the archetypes you've been thinking of. Yeah, so I'm gonna go, I'm gonna one up the it depends and say it's both, <laughs> right? Oh, so, there we uh, go. <laughs> so so it does. It, what what I see happen in some situations is there's a lot less drama. Like not being in the office, we get really focused on tasks. We get things done. We don't have a. There's not a lot of the like I don't. If you roll your eyes on me at me when your camera's off on a Zoom meeting, I have no idea, right? And so we just move on. But if I catch you roll your eyes at me and when we're sitting together in the conference room, that's going to cause a problem, right? Mm. And so in some ways, I think it we become a little more task focused, which has its downsides, I'll get to in a minute, but I think it's some in some ways it reduces the intera- number of interactions in which there's a risk that one of us will perceive a slight or there'll be some incivility. And I've heard actually, um, I've read some articles and heard directly from from se- several people of color, particularly women of color, who say they love working remotely because they're not subject to microaggressions in the same way they were when they had to go to an office. Um, on the flip side, what ends up happening we have is we have a lot less context to understand behavior. So I'm when when I'm seeing you on a little screen, I don't know what's going on around that screen. I don't know what's going. I don't know what weather is happening outside. I don't know where you just came from or who you were just talking to. And so I have a very limited uh, set of, in, of details or information with which to interpret your behavior, and because. I like, you know, looking at myself as a, on a little box as, on a screen, I don't feel very human, right? I feel very digital. I feel very virtual. And therefore, we're not, we don't tend to pull on our empathy the same way we would if I could see you in person. And, and you know, we're exchanging, we're observing one another's body language where I understand you just came out of a meeting with a bunch of people that looked really tense, right? There's a lot of ways in which I'm then able to give you the benefit of the doubt that I don't do when when we're virtual. And I think a lot of people tend to some of their worst behavior comes out in, you know, in virtual environments. They tend to be shorter, more terse. They don't communicate well via, you know, and Slack or email or whatever text communication. And it's just ripe for miscommunication and misunderstanding. And so it's really both. I think in some ways it's helped and, and I think in some ways it's it's hurt. And I think the real answer, and this is very, um, this is yet again the simple but very tough thing to do, is to be much more intentional around how we communicate, right? Is really be clear, my purpose with sharing this is to do this. 
Um, mm. I want to check in with you about how that meeting went. I there were some things that were said or that I didn't quite understand, or I was picking up on a vibe that I'm maybe I'm off, but I'd love to hear more about what you think. It requires us to over communicate, over process, and 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 over communicating over process is is probably too strong. I mean, communicate more and just be more mm. intentional in in the way that we do it. And once again, set those norms. Like, is it okay to have your camera off or not? Mm. Right. Yep. Is it is it okay to just send a one word email, right? Like those very those things that then become, you know, ugh, Dan's Dan always sends a one word email. He I, I, he has no respect for me and my department, mm. right? It's like well, maybe Dan's just really busy. Maybe he thinks that's an acceptable way to communicate. If we have norms around that, or even you and I actually have a conversation about it, then we're able to sort of avoid that miscommunication and from things really spiraling out of control. Well, Amy, um, thank you so much for your time um, this morning. Just a minute ago, you said, um, you know, we can often get a lot more out of interactions when we see each other in person. And for those of us living in Sydney, Australia, they're going to get that opportunity um, in October. Can you just tell us a little bit about your trip coming up? And then on, on top of that, if they can't get to Sydney, where can they get your book? And um, yeah. how might they commute? How might they connect with you? You work outside of that as well. Sure. So I'm very excited to be coming to Sydney. It's my first time in Sydney. I'll be there um, October 11th and 12th is the World Business Forum event there in Sydney and at the convention center. I'll be speaking there along an illustrious uh, group of, of other speakers. If you're able to, to check it out, please, please do. Um, if you're not able to make it, you can definitely find my book. Um, I know Dimix uh, carries it. They, like you said earlier, the paperback version is just out in Australia. So you should be able to get it at most booksellers. You can also connect with me online. Um, my website is amyegallo.com. I have a newsletter I send out twice a month if you want to keep up with my work and my thinking. And then always you can check out my writing on um, Harvard Business Review, hbr.org. Um, I have hundreds of articles, many on the topics we've covered uh, today. So um, yeah, I'd love to love to hear from people. I'm I'm really really honored you asked me to to be on the podcast, and uh, I look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, likewise, and yeah, thank you very much for um, for coming on. Um, we'll make sure all those links are in the show notes so people can uh, easily navigate there. And yeah, that's, uh, I hope you enjoy your trip to Australia. I know you're going to do some diving on the reef as well, which is going right. to be awesome. So yeah, uh, travel well, and um, thank yeah, you. chat to you soon. All right. Thanks so much, Dan. So as I mentioned, the link to Amy's website and the link to her articles at Harvard Business Review, you will find them in the show notes. You'll also find, don't forget, the link to download your own copy of our curated um, articles on the art of managing up. If you found that conversation worthwhile, then there is a fair chance that someone you know might. So please feel free to share this as far and as wide as you can. And while we've got you, if you wouldn't mind just subscribing to the podcast, commenting on the podcast, giving us a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts, we would really, really appreciate it. That is the number one way you can show support for this podcast and it does crazy things in the internet world which means this podcast gets pushed out to more and more people based on whether you like it or not so if you like it let the world know so 
as we always say, if um, you're interested in finding out more about our work or perhaps you'd like to suggest a guest or perhaps you've got a question for an upcoming Q&A episode, all of that stuff can be found at habitsofleadership.com. You can click on the podcast page there and get in touch with us. But until our next episode, thank you so much for listening. Take care. Take it easy.